We're going to be using this four-week period of time leading up to Easter to simply focus on the person of Jesus. And by the way, I'm I'm really excited about Easter this year, okay, for a number of reasons. I just love talking about the resurrected Jesus. I mean, that's just, that's a great message. I mean, that's why I'm a Christian, and that's, I love talking about that. And yet, I am especially excited this year because for the first time in a long time, in fact, I can't remember the last time this has happened, is that Easter falls this year not around any of the local spring breaks for schools. And typically, I, I even see we get a number of people out of town this weekend with spring break. And, and, and typically, that then impacts our crowd on Easter weekend. And I want to encourage you over the next four weeks to just be praying and asking God to say, okay, you know, hopefully you'll be here on Easter weekend. And you can see we've got four different times that we'll be worshiping on that Easter weekend but be inviting others to come and join us. And let's, let's, let's just pray that we'll have a record Easter crowd this year, that we'll have an opportunity to tell more people than we've ever told before the message of the resurrection. And let's be praying about that and be praying that God will really uh, answer our prayers in a great way. So this is going to be our focus throughout the four weeks leading up to Easter and then on Easter Sunday as well, simply Jesus. By the way, the reason why I wasn't here last weekend, I've mentioned that twice now, is because it was very important for me to be in Michigan last week. Now, some of you might think there's never a good reason to be in Michigan, but but there was an important reason for me to be up in Michigan in the Detroit area to welcome my third grandchild and my first grandson into the world, Cooper Armstrong Ruse. And I think we've got a picture of him. Uh, Here here I am uh, last weekend holding him uh, next to his older sister. Uh, He, his uh, mother, my daughter Anna, uh, his daddy, his older sister, uh, are all doing great. In fact, uh, his... uh, Grandma, or Gaga, as she's called in our family, is still in that state up north, and uh, hopefully she'll come back sometime. Okay, I don't know. She's just loving being around the grandchildren, uh, the two of our three grandchildren that are up there, and uh, I'm hoping she comes back sometime. But we're glad that Cooper was born in time for March Madness as he's quickly rallied behind a certain team, okay? And do we have that photo? There we go. Okay. Just saying, I I had nothing to do with that hat, but uh, it's there. Well, back to our, our message series. Our goal for this series, as I mentioned, is to simply hold up Jesus on the weeks leading up to Easter in a way that our understanding and trust in Him will grow in a very significant way. And our prayer is that during this series is that each and every person that attends here and on Easter weekend will be drawn to Jesus in a way beyond what they've ever been drawn before. Now, for those of you who are maybe new to church or this whole Bible thing, uh, 
my hope is that maybe you'll be drawn to Jesus for the first time, and you'll see Jesus for who he really is. If you're new to the Bible, it's important for you to understand that there are four different written descriptions of the Jesus story. We call these narratives, gospels. Uh, And during the four weeks uh, of this series, we're going to be examining each of these gospels and make important overview observations about how we can see uh, more clearly who Jesus is by looking uh, through the focus of how that gospel writer presents him. Now, to enhance this focus, we want to encourage everybody this. You know, a lot of times uh, people approach Easter, uh, and, and there's value in this, but a lot of times the focus during the weeks leading up to Easter is a focus of, of letting go of something or quitting doing something for uh, a period of time. I want to ask you to add something. I want to ask you to add something to your preparation for Easter weekend. And here's my challenge for everyone here at Southwest, is pick one of the four Gospels, one of the four Gospels, and decide that you're going to read that Gospel in the weeks leading up to Easter. And make a commitment that you'll finish that Gospel reading on Easter weekend. See, each of the four gospel records of Jesus end with the resurrection. So that would be a great way to go into the Easter weekend. And if you don't have a Bible that's readily understandable for you, then we want to encourage you to pick up one of these paperback New Testaments that are out in the lobby. The New Testament is the portion of the Bible that deals with Jesus, His teachings, and what it means to follow him. And we want to encourage you to pick one of these up, and, and it's an easy-to-read translation, a New Living Translation. Pick one of the first four books in it and make a commitment to read through it the entire book uh, in this month. Now, uh, if you choose Matthew, by the way, it just happens, if you choose Matthew, which is going to be the gospel we focus on today, it's 28 chapters. So it's a real nice breakdown. If you would start reading today or tomorrow and read one chapter every day, you would actually finish on Easter Sunday. That'd be pretty cool. And and that's not overwhelming, one chapter a day, but it would enable you to capture the Jesus story and keep that focus. Another way you can heighten this focus uh, for those of you who are newer to Southwest is to choose one of the four options that we're providing Uh, during the next four weeks to take our starting point class. Uh, Starting point is an opportunity to examine the core beliefs. And we've reworked this this year, and we're offering it in one hour where we look at just the core beliefs of the church, where we focus primarily on who is Jesus, what has he done for us, and what does it mean to respond to him. And if you've never taken that class, we're going to just offer four different options. They're all the same class, one hour. And pick one of those, whether it be a Wednesday, Tuesday, or Thursday, and and take that. Just again, adding something to your week to, to heighten your understanding of who Jesus is. Well, in this series, we're beginning with the Gospel of Matthew, which is the first gospel listed in the Bible. And it's the first book of the New Testament. 
Now, as we look at Matthew, it's listed first in the Bible, not because it was probably the first one written. It probably wasn't. Mark was probably the first one written. And yet, it was most likely first listed since it was the gospel that was circulated and most widely read and even quoted by the early Christians. It also makes sense to list it first uh, because of all the gospels, this is the gospel that has the most Old Testament quotations, references in it. The Old Testament is the part of the Bible that was written before Jesus came to earth. And so in many ways, it serves as a bridge between the Old Testament and the New Testament as there's all these quotations to create this bridge. It contains some of Jesus' most memorable quotations, including Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes, and the Lord's Prayer. Now, this particular narrative does not self-identify the author, but the early church leaders and early Christian writers identified this gospel to be written by one of Jesus' first followers, a guy named Matthew a guy that was introduced in this gospel bearing his name in this way, Matthew 9, verse 9. And you can follow these scriptures on screen or in the message notes in the bulletin. As Jesus was walking along, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at his tax collector's booth. Follow me and be my disciple, Jesus said to him. So Matthew got up and followed him. Now, based on the evidence that I've read, I believe that this former tax collector, who was probably the most experienced at writing detailed notes, think about it, he was, it makes sense, the one that would record this very detailed narrative of Jesus' life. He is possibly the one who's the most grateful for the hope and forgiveness that Jesus brings into our life because he was probably uh, feeling some shame for the way that he had lived his past life as a, what many would have viewed as a traitor to the Jewish people, as a tax collector, probably even taking money that didn't belong to him. He was also one of the most unlikely of the 12 to be invited into this newly formed community that Jesus forms. Uh, As a former tax collector, he was alienated. Others would have not wanted to associate with him. And so possibly because of great gratitude that he had been invited into this community, this inner circle of Jesus, maybe that's why he's the only one of the four gospel writers that specifically describes the church, because he was grateful to be a part of Jesus' church. Now, one of the many ways to break down this amazing book, and there's a number of ways, is to examine three important questions that the gospel not only reveals but also answers. And we'll do this by looking at the three major divisions within the book listed in your message notes. The first question is, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? Well, Matthew doesn't waste any time in answering this first question. He begins tackling it in his very first verse when he says, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Matthew clearly identifies Jesus as the anticipated revolutionary leader who had been described in the Old Testament. 
Matthew masterfully describes Jesus' human genealogy to show that Jesus is the fulfillment of all the Old Testament prophecies. And he ends the genealogies with this clear statement of identity. In verse 16, Mary gave birth to Jesus, who is called the Messiah. So he identifies Jesus as the Messiah. Who is he? He's the Messiah. Now, some translations at the end of verse 16, instead of translating that Messiah, they translate it, who is called Christ. Now, these uh, are not nicknames or last names. I think a lot of people think that Jesus Christ, Jesus was his first name, Christ was his last name. That's not what it was. These are not nicknames. These are not last names. These are titles describing who he is. The Hebrew word Messiah is synonymous with the Greek word Christ. Both mean the anointed one. So when you say one, you're saying the other. He is the Christ. He is the Messiah. Matthew clearly declares that Jesus is the Christ. He's the Messiah. This is a term that describes God's anointed leader or king. The kings of the Old Testament were anointed. And Jesus was the king who was to come on the scene and bring revolution. Now, from their perspective, they thought that he was going to bring freedom from Roman oppression. And yet, it is important for us to acknowledge that when we say Jesus is the Christ, we're saying that Jesus is the King. From time to time in the Bible, in fact, sometimes when I'm in small groups and and we're doing reading, and I'm going to share this and people are going to be nervous to read in front of me, okay? Because you're going to think I'm always criticizing you or or evaluating you. But but sometimes in, in the New Testament, you'll see uh, writings where it say Jesus Christ, and then sometimes it's flipped, where it says Christ Jesus. And I've even noticed when I listen to other people read, they sometimes will still say Jesus Christ, because it just seems awkward to say Christ Jesus. But if we understand that Christ means King, it really makes sense, doesn't it, to say King Jesus. That's who we're declaring Jesus to be. Now, As Matthew clearly describes him in that way, uh, interestingly enough, kingdom language in Matthew is more prevalent than anywhere else in the Bible. It's a real emphasis in this first gospel for Jesus to be the king of our lives. This was the promise and hope of the Jewish people for centuries, that God was going to send the anointed one, the Messiah, the king that was going to bring Uh, revolution that was going to bring freedom, and yet he didn't come as they expected him to come. Jesus didn't arrive on the scene as a political or military leader, as an earthly king, but he came as a spiritual leader who calls for a revolution within our hearts and our minds to free us from our past and to free us from anxiety and burdens so that we can live a new life. Later in the same chapter, we're told this about Jesus in Matthew 1, verse 23. Look, the virgin will conceive a child. She'll give birth to a son. And they will call him Emmanuel, 
which means God is with us. Now, although typically this is a, a, a message that we visit and revisit at Christmas time, it's also very appropriate to visit at Easter time or any time of the year. It's a, it's a significant prevailing theme throughout Matthew's gospel. In fact, I believe it's, he begins with this theme and he ends with this theme. We'll see that at the end of our message. As we keep reading in Matthew, we will see that Jesus isn't simply a human, but he's actually God in the flesh. Yes, he was human. He was 100% human, but he was also 100% God. It takes faith to accept that equation, but I believe it to be true. So to be in relationship with Jesus means coming into God's presence. Jesus' arrival on the scene is a constant reminder that the eternal God has come near to us in the person of Jesus. And as we draw near to Jesus, as we focus on Him, as we keep our eyes fixed on Him, as we study His life, examine Him, as we seek to imitate Him, we can experience the hope that God is with us. In fact, for the Christian, who's experienced the reality that Jesus is at work in your heart and in your life, then you can experience the very presence of God on an ongoing basis. Have you ever had one of those weeks that you just really sensed your need for supernatural help or comfort? I'm not talking about filling out your brackets for the NCAA tournament. Some of us just need a lot of comfort because our brackets are busted, but I'm not talking about that kind of thing. I'm talking about when you've had that kind of week that you've received some bad news that rocks your world. Maybe it's a difficult challenge at work, at school, or in your family. It's a challenge you just don't know how to address or solve. It's that challenge that keeps you awake at night. Maybe it's hearing from someone who had earlier told you they wanted to spend the rest of their life with you, and now they're saying they want to end the relationship. How do you make sense of that? You wrestle. You grapple with that. Maybe it's a call you receive from a doctor or a relative that you hear the C word. How do you respond? Do you quickly go into despair Or is there an underlying calm in your life that because of Jesus being in your life and because of following him and because of centering your life around his teachings that that God is with us, that God's presence is here? You see, this week I received one of those gut punch calls. I received a call from my older sister I'd asked some of you to pray for, and the news came back from a biopsy that, yes, she has liver cancer. That's tough news to hear of someone really close to you, someone you love. And as, she, as I received that news and that she's undergoing more tests and diagnosis to determine the best course of action, And in the midst of trying to wrestle with that news, 
I look at my phone and it's her calling me. When you receive that call, how do you respond? What do you say in that moment? I'm thinking, here's my sister calling me, wanting to try to wrestle with this news she's received in her life. And and what can I say as a brother to her? What can I say that will make any difference? What can I say that will bring comfort? And, and, And I don't know what you would have said, but I wrestled with what to say. And I, I did the only thing I knew what to do. I, I simply said, Rita, would you like to pray with me? And I just prayed for, for God to reassure her and that, that, that God would really just comfort her and strengthen her and that God would be at work. You see, I, I'm convinced that that the best thing I can do in those situations is just to remind people God cares and God's present. That's what we see in Jesus. God is with us. That's the good news. In fact, that's what the word gospel means. Good news, Jesus is here. Now, here's the other good news. My sister's a Christian, and she's living out her faith, and I'm grateful for that. And yesterday, as we talked and prayed over the phone again, She shared with me, she's hopeful that God's going to be at work in this situation and that God's going to use it for good. I can't imagine facing news like that without the hope that God's with us. I mean, when I hear news like that that rocks my world, I think, how does someone that's not yet enter the relationship with God, how, how do they deal with that kind of news? How does it just not wreck their world? And I think for many it does just wreck their world and send them into despair. And yet, you see, I believe with putting our hope in Jesus and the promise of Him, we can face those tough things of life. We can face those challenges, those storms, and we can have a calm that makes no sense to those that are outside of Christ. And that's why we as a church have embraced a vision statement for why, why we believe what God wants to do through us. And it's plastered on our wall out there in the lobby that, that we want to be a church that's bridging the gap to those without Jesus so that no one has to live without hope. Because you see, with Jesus, there's always hope. If not in this world, in the world to come. And that's why we need to get this message of Christ out because people every day within five miles of this building, 80,000 people living around here are hearing news that's rocking their world and they don't have an anchor to hold them and they're fall apart. We've got, we've got a message that we need to get out there to meet people that desperately need to hear the hope that's available in Jesus. So who is Jesus? Our first question, he's the Christ. He's the Messiah. He's our King. He's the giver of hope. He's the continual reminder that God is with us. And with God, there's always hope. What's our second question? What is Jesus' message? 
The second part of Matthew, beginning with the following statement of Matthew 4.17, says, from that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That statement from that time, Jesus began to preach, is repeated again at the beginning, I think it's the third section of Matthew. You'll see later. So what is Jesus' message? He came bringing a message of repentance. Now, oftentimes when we hear the word repentance, we can easily think, that's a tough teaching. You know, repentance is, is one of those words that's it's kind of like the broccoli or Brussels sprouts of Christianity. You know, you know what I'm talking about? You know, broccoli, Brussels sprouts, it's the cauliflower. Okay, maybe you really like those foods, but, but, but those are those kind of vegetables. It's like, I know that's good for me, but, uh, you know, it doesn't taste as good as some of the other stuff. Some of us feel that way toward repentance. Okay, yeah, I know that's good for me, but it just, uh, it just doesn't taste good. I want to share with you a different way to view repentance. That's the message Jesus came bringing, repentance. You see, to repent means to have a change of thinking. Some of us need a change of thinking. Some of us typically fall into what... what uh, 12-step groups call stinking thinking, or we just tend to, we just tend to think negatively, or we tend to think in worst-case scenarios. Repentance literally means to change our minds, to change our thinking. For some of us, repentance means to change the way we tend to think or process things, things, and to replace a negative, pessimistic worldview with a faithful, hopeful mindset. This is one way to understand what repentance is. For some, we might have a change of mindset before we can even believe the good message of Jesus. This is why Mark's gospel message begins with repent and believe the good news. For years, I thought, okay, did Mark get that backwards? Because we typically say believe and repent. But, but sometimes we have to have a change of mind before we can even believe this good news that Jesus provides. Now, this doesn't mean that repentance won't lead to a change of our view of life's priorities or maybe our attitude toward personal pleasures. And yet, for some, repentance is simply a mindset change. Jesus' message was repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. To embrace God's kingdom, to embrace God's will for our lives, we must first embrace the mindset to surrender our lives to Jesus' teaching. This is a simple way to understand what it means to be about God's kingdom, a a repeated theme in Matthew's gospel, is to allow Jesus to reign in our heart as king. When we experience this mind change of repentance, then we can accept the call the earliest followers of Jesus did. In Matthew 4, 19, he said to them, follow me and I will make you fish for people. We've talked about this before, but in this simple invitation, you see the definition of what it means to be a disciple, another common theme of Matthew, where you see, follow me, it's that head decision that I will take my cues from Jesus and I will follow his teaching and surrender to his way of life. I will make you, that's the heart saying, I want Jesus to change me. Sometimes down deep, we don't want to be changed. 
That's where we have to have that repentance, that change of thought where we say, yes, I want to be changed. I, some of us just want a little bit of Jesus, but it's, it's a whole de- together different thing to say, I want to surrender and let Jesus change me to be the person he wants me to be. And in the third phrase, fish for people. The early, earliest Jesus followers were fishermen. They understood to fish They had to roll up their sleeves and get their hands dirty. And sometimes in following Jesus, it means we've got to be hands-on, looking for ways to be the hands and feet of Jesus. Are you willing to follow Jesus with your head, your heart, and your hands? Now, it'd be easy after hearing what Jesus says in Matthew's gospel about kingship and discipleship to think, I'm not sure if I'm ready for that kind of commitment. I'm not sure if I'm ready to really surrender my heart to Jesus. If you're struggling with that, if you're thinking, oh, that seems kind of restrictive, that seems kind of like, it, that seems like that would be really tough to surrender to Jesus' teaching. I want you to hear what else Jesus had to say in his message. A little later in Matthew, in Matthew 11, verse 28. Jesus said, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus reminds us that we're already burdened and weary with life. And that if we accept Jesus' yoke or leadership in our life, he will not add burden to our life, but instead he will give us what? Peace and rest. If you've experienced the burdens of trying to live a perfect life, if you've experienced the burden of trying to be popular with others, trying to please others, trying to attain a certain status of life, or even trying to fulfill the burdens of religious activities, then you can relate to Jesus' description of being weary and burdened. It's, it's easy to imagine in our mind, well, I've been half committed, half surrendered to Jesus, and I'm half miserable. And if I totally surrendered to Jesus, I'll be totally miserable. That's, I think, how we think sometimes. Where Jesus says, no, it's just the opposite. When you're just half in, you're not yet experiencing the peace that I've come to bring. But if you'll totally surrender, totally say, yes, I want to follow you with my head, my heart, my hands, make me who you want me to be. When we totally get to that point where we say, Jesus is king, I'll be his disciple, his follower, I want to learn from him. Jesus says, that's where you'll find real peace. That's where you'll find rest. Or our last point, what's so revolutionary about Jesus? This, this, this message is entitled The Revolutionary Leader. What's so revolutionary about Jesus? Well, he taught what appears to be upside-down values. He taught, blessed are those who mourn, for they'll be comforted. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Those seem backwards compared to what the world teaches. The truth is the world's the one that's got it upside down. Jesus has it upside right. And here's the good news. 
Matthew ends in the same way that it begins. It begins with Jesus came, he's Emmanuel, he's God with us. And at the end of Matthew's gospel, he gives the great commission in Matthew 28. And and he ends that great commission. If you accept this commission to be my follower, to go make disciples of all nations, he says, here's the good news. I'll be with you always to the very end of the age. Now, the fascinating thing to me also as we conclude the gospel of Matthew, and this is tough to try to condense a whole 28 chapters down to 30 minutes or so, okay, is that, is that throughout Matthew's gospel, Jesus only goes to the Jewish people. The good news is only available to those that look like, talk like, and really have the same background as Jesus in the first 12 followers. Yet as as Matthew ends his gospel, he says, now go into all nations. You see, here's the revolutionary thing. This is a message not just for the chosen people of God, it's a message for all people. It's a message for those who don't look like us, who don't think like us, who maybe don't speak the same language as we do. It's a message that Jesus says the whole world needs to hear. Well, Jesus didn't bring about a revolution by political or military might, but he did it by changing one heart at a time. Has he changed your heart? Have you had a willingness to surrender to his kingship and allow him to change you and remake you and to give you the peace that he longs to give, a peace that he is present and a rest that only you can find in him. He brought about a revolution not by overpowering others, but by serving others and surrendering his will to the Father's will and to be that suffering servant. Our final verse in Matthew 16, verse 21 From that time on, Jesus began to explain to disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. You know, we talk about surrendering to Jesus' leadership. We talk about allowing him to be the Messiah, the king of our life. Some of you might think, "Ah, I don't know if I want to give up the reins of my life. I don't know if I want to give up control. I don't know if I can trust him. Here's the good news. We can trust him because he's the kind of king that says, I'll not only lead you, but I will do whatever it takes to provide for you, even dying for you. Here at Southwest, we each week take communion to remind us that we're not called to be religious. We're not called just to go through the motions. We're called to follow a savior, to follow a king who not only invites us, but he says, I I invite you because I'm willing to die for you. Let's realize during this time of communion that Jesus is worthy 
of our fellowship because he is, he is the king. Let's pray together. Dear God, thank you. Thank you for just this reminder of how awesome Jesus is and who he is. Help us during this time of communion truly surrender our hearts to him. Maybe for some for the first time. Help us be willing to do whatever he's called us to do. But help us realize he was willing to do whatever you called him to do, even dying for us on the cross. Help us remember him and be motivated to follow him because of his love for us. It's in Jesus' name we pray.